So the Holy Spirit does not lead you ever to commit any of the works of the flesh. The Spirit of God will not drive you to sin. And likewise, the flesh cannot produce a life of good works that are pleasing to God. You're listening to Galatians, a sermon series preached in the fall of 2019 at Shoreline Church. For more audio and theological content, visit thisisshoreline.com. Well, there are a few things in life that are incompatible. They just simply don't go together. Let me give you a list of examples. Oil and water, they don't go together. If you've tried cooking, if you've accidentally mixed the two, they don't mix. There's other things that are incompatible. The Yankees and the Red Sox. I'm not going to do a show of hands, but we know who the Red Sox fans are, and we definitely know who the Yankees fans are, don't we? Yes, we do. Those two don't go together. What else doesn't go together? The idea of a Twinkie (laughs) is a wonderful idea, by the way. It's It's a beautiful concept. I love creation. And we've come up with some creative amazingness, and the Twinkie is one of those things. But fat-free Twinkie, you're already going, anyway, yeah, you're going to have a Twinkie, just go for it. Finally, I've heard of this, but there is a thing known as extreme badminton. Extreme, okay, so that's a thing. Uh, But when you think about these things that don't go together, we we could be funny with it and say government intelligence, right, that doesn't seem to go together. Uh, Republican Party, right? So we're going to have a part, any political party, actually. We're going to have politics and have a party. Those two don't go together. Uh, A meek Patriots fan. Do those two things go together? A meek (laughs) Patriots fan. (laughs) The Patriots fans love that, by the way. Um, There's things that don't go together. There's some nervous laughter, like, can we laugh at that? So uh, what about when it comes to our Christian walk? Is there anything that's incompatible? Is there a paradox or a thing that we could say, these two things are not consistent in the life of a Christian? Uh, Because when I read the writings of Paul, I see that there's actually a person that Paul is kind of um, describing that has a tinge of frustration in their voice when they realize that I'm supposed to be a Christian, but there's this thing that doesn't seem to allow me to really be a Christian. And it really reaches a a culmination in Romans chapter 7. Look at this on the screen. Romans 7, starting in verse 15. Uh, Think about this in your own Christian experience. And if you're here with a pulse and you're a Christian, this is an apt description of many of our Christian experiences. He says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Do Do you experience that? And then he says in verse 21, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another, here's that word again, law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then he says this, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And that's where we come to that realization that I need to be rescued, that I can't do this in my own ability, that I've tried to conjure up my own works and try to clean up my life and do the right thing, and I find that I still fall short. So who will rescue me? I am in the ocean sinking. I'm actually at the bottom of the ocean. Who will pluck me out of that and save me? And he says this, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Amazing idea. But there seems to be this paradox, this internal struggle in our existence and our behavior as Christ followers. We, in one hand, want to desperately live holy and God-pleasing lives that bring him glory uh, and lives that are beneficial and meaningful to others. We want to live that way. But we also want to ignore God and live an unholy, self-pleasing life that brings our self-glory and that is beneficial and self-serving and meaningful to me. And so this is bigger than just a little internal struggle, like I'm kind of struggling with this. This is all-out war. And the Apostle Paul recognized this war that takes place in the life of every believer. We have been saved by grace, and we've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, but we still have the sinful nature. We still have the old man, the flesh, that wants to rise up and you could say hold the remote, wants to keep us in that place of bondage. And so this cosmic war that's raging within the Christian and the opposing forces defined by Paul here in our passage is known as the battle between the flesh and the spirit. So that's kind of the title of the sermon today and this text, the flesh versus the spirit. Uh, This is also incidentally also our outline. Uh, And we're gonna see today what it looks like to walk in the spirit versus to walk in the flesh. And so rather than what we normally do, what I normally do in teaching a section of Scripture is I'll break it down into sections, and everything rhymes or has, you know, alliteration, everything begins with an S or whatever. So instead of doing that, we're going to be a little less linear today and actually let the text speak for itself, not try to put an outline together from the verses, but just make some main points from the text, okay? So if you're taking note, I'm going to give all four of them to you right now, and I want you to jot them down or take a picture so you don't miss this. Okay, we're going to see in this text some big ideas, and here they are. First, the flesh and the spirit are opposites. They are opposed to one another. Secondly, the flesh earns condemnation. It actually, you're working for something, and the payday is the central practice and its condemnation. You've worked hard. You've lived a life of sensuality. The payday is condemnation. Thirdly, we're going to see that the spirit, in contrast to the flesh, produces, it's not about work, it's about production, and it produces a fruitful character in your life that is actually pleasing to God by the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And finally, number four, a powerful point that really stands against all that the Judaizers represented in the region of Galatia, and that is number four, that the spirit life, the life of the Holy Spirit in us, is not under the law. And so we're going to understand and kind of work through these concepts today. So let's start with this first idea that the flesh and the spirit are opposites. Look at verses 16 and 17. Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, or another translation, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Circle that phrase, you will not. We'll come back to that. You will not. I want you to note that little phrase. And then verse 17, he says this, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. You might want to underline that word, against. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are, another word to circle, opposed to each other. And here's what happens. It keeps you from doing the things you want to do. I don't know if you caught some of Romans 7 in that. uh, But there is an inability to do the things you ultimately want to do. Why? Because of the flesh. Because of the flesh. So uh, just to define this, what is the flesh? The flesh is not the physical body. That's not necessarily that. The Greek word for flesh is the word sarx, S-A-R-X. Uh, And it can be translated body, but that's not what Paul's saying here. So the phrase the flesh means the fallen, sinful, corrupt nature 
that is filled with appetites and desires that are contrary to God. Not just appetite, but appetites and desires that are contrary to God. So you could say that the flesh is synonymous with the old man. First time I heard that, it was like, yeah, we got to fight the old man. I was like, wait a minute. Um, I didn't understand that phrase. You could say the natural man is maybe a better way of saying that. But let me be clear. Apart from the intervention of God's spirit, fallen man is merely in the flesh. Does that make sense? Apart from God's intervention by the Holy Spirit, you are in the flesh. You are fallen. You are natural. You are the old man. There's no way that you in that state can be pleasing to God. In fact, Romans 8, 8 says it the shortest and easiest way possible. It's pretty direct. Paul said this, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. As much as they attempt to, they cannot please God. So you heap up all your good works, but you don't yield to Christ. That is really you're unable to please God. So to be in the flesh, William Barclay says that man is incapable of knowing God apart from God's special revelation. He's incapable. And so just think about this. When the Spirit of God intervenes in the life of someone who is in the flesh and unregenerate, everything about that person suddenly changes. Everything changes. This wasn't just like I made a decision to kind of clean up my life and start going to church more. And, you know, I've kind of taken the old patterns and kind of cleaned them up a little bit. And now I, I, I stopped listening to that bad music and now I listen to the good music. That's not the idea here at all. Barclay says this. He says, it is the Spirit of God who takes up residence in Christians to enable them to understand spiritual things, 1 Corinthians 2.14. It's the Spirit of God who enables us to receive Christ as Savior and Lord and to even call God our Father, Romans 8.15, Galatians 4.6. And develop a Christian personality, meaning a life of Christ. The Spirit is thus the presence of God in the man through which fellowship with God is made possible and power given for winning the warfare against sin in the soul. And so that is what Paul means when he refers to the Spirit, capital S, in this section. Uh, this word spirit in this section is the Greek word pneuma. It starts with a P, pneuma. And we get the word breath from pneuma. We get the word wind uh, air or even life from the word pneuma. And so the idea here is that we have the breath of life in us ultimately because the Holy Spirit has breathed life into us. But as believers, we are baptized into Christ and thus when that happens, we receive the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Every believer has the Holy Spirit indwelling them. And until they lay this corrupt body into the ground, every believer also simultaneously still has to contend with the flesh. Now, some have erroneously taught that believers don't have to contend with sin anymore. They've said, you know, you don't have to sin anymore, like, or you don't sin anymore. Your body doesn't sin. Once you're a Christian, sin is gone. Now, um, uh, that, or the, the, the flesh is eradicated and you become sinless. And that's misinformed teaching. That's misinformed, that's misunderstanding some ideas. So we have both the Spirit of God and the flesh in Christ. One poem captures this well. This poem says, I'm a man and a man's a mixture right down from his very birth. For part of him comes from heaven and part of him comes from earth. That's, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. But the desires of the flesh, Paul says here, are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. And they're in stark opposition to one another. So you actually can't do what you desire to do in the Spirit at the same time you're walking in the flesh. That's what he's saying. 
So like, I want to please God, I want to live for him, but I'm bound up in my sinful desires, and that's not going to allow me to actually bear fruit in the spirit. So notice that phrase again, I had you circle, that phrase in verse 16. Notice with me, he says, you will not. I wanted you to circle that because in the Greek, this is the strongest negation possible. What he's saying here is he's using a double negative with a a subjunctive uh, in the aorist tense, which just to look fancy, what he means by there is never under any circumstances will you be able to do this. This will never happen. You'll never be walking in the spirit while you're walking in the flesh. Have I pushed that point enough home? Does that make sense now? Uh, So uh, he says in verse 17 that these two natures are opposites. That's why. They're at enmity with each other. At enmity. However, because you're in Adam, you're going to have the flesh uh, until you die. You're you're stuck in it. And so um, one way that we talk about this dual nature in Christ, how do we talk about the dual nature that Jesus had is a phrase that we use theologically called the hypostatic union. Um, We'll put it on the screen so you can jot this down. This is an important phrase to think about when we think about who Jesus is. The hypostatic union kind of sounds like a cool techno band. Um, Anyway, hypostatic union is officially this idea that the dual nature uh, of Christ is summarized that Jesus was truly man and truly God. Some people have said, uh, well, Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. And I was like, I'm not good at math, but I'm pretty sure that's 200%. And they would say, right, he's worth worshiping because he's off the charts. Okay, well, that's fine. That's fine. But I like the phrase R.C. Sproul said, Jesus was truly man and he was truly God. There's this compatibility within the hypostatic union that Jesus was fully man and fully God. You could say that as Jesus walked the earth, he was the most spirit-filled man ever uh, to live. He was completely reliant upon the work of the Holy Spirit, the leading of the Holy Spirit. Uh, In his incarnation, Jesus was descended from Eve, and yet he did not have the flesh. He did not have that sinful, corrupt nature. One way of thinking about this is this, that physically Jesus was born from below, but spiritually Jesus was born from above. And, And so we know this, right? We know this, that man was originally created without sin. God created man without sin. And so just think about that. Man was perfect. Life Creation was perfect. God saw everything and he said it is very good. It was very good. No sickness. No IRS. Right? No traffic. Uh, no acid reflux. No death. Incidentally, no children. <laughs> uh, it was perfect. It was perfect. <laughs> Not making a case for that. When Adam and Eve fell, they died spiritually, according to Genesis 2.17. And so this spiritual death was passed on to their children, and it became the one great devastating flaw in humankind. So now man, because of the fall, is spiritually dead, and now the flesh has corrupted our very nature. And that leads us to respond to the self-centered drives in our sin-warped nature rather than to God. Paul summarizes this in Ephesians 2. We're going somewhere with this, by the way. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Paul says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked. Notice the past tense of this. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in, here's this idea, the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were 
by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That was what we were. We were having to give in to sin. We were bound up in the flesh. We had no spiritual life that was awakened. But then the next verse says, but in his mercy, uh, because of his great love for us, God intervened on our behalf. And he sent his son Jesus to become a man and then to the cross to die for our sins. Uh, And so Jesus was born physically, but he wasn't tainted with the flesh that you and I have been tainted with. And so Jesus restored spiritual life uh, by living perfectly, going to the cross as the perfect sacrifice. And when Jesus rose from the dead, we who receive him can now have a right relationship with God uh, once again uh, through faith. And so when you first place your faith in Christ for salvation, the Bible says you're now born again. You're born again by the Spirit. So there's a spiritual birth. So you guys see where, how this is kind of a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing? We have, in one sense, this beautiful nature now that God has awakened to us in the Holy Spirit, and yet we still are bound by this body until we die that's been corrupted with the original fall. And, and so uh, I want us to get this, to kind of capture this, that you are not just in kind of a bad state in need of a little course correction. You're not in a place where it's like you just need to clean up a few things and then you're good with God. I want to like push this point a little further so that all of us feel the weight of of sin and death and condemnation looming over us. I actually want you to feel the condemnation a bit this morning because I love you. And if I love you, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not going to tell you you're good and God gets it and it's all good and just kind of do your best, try harder. No, I want to tell you you're incapable today of salvation. You're incapable today of being a good enough person to win your soul to heaven. And that is horrible news, and yet it's glorious good news because there is a way. And and so one of the uh, guys I love reading was uh, by the name of J.O. Philpott. Here's what he said. He said, as no heart, quoted by um, A.W. Pink in The Depravity of Man, he says, as no heart can sufficiently conceive, so no tongue can adequately express. Here it is. This is you and me. I love you, but this is you and me. The state of wretchedness and ruin into which sin has cast guilty, miserable man. In separating him from God, and I want you to picture you, not the one guy you're thinking of right now, you and I, apart from Christ, separating us from God. It severed him from the only source of all happiness and holiness. It has ruined him body and soul. The one it is filled with sickness and disease, that's our body. In the other, it has defaced and destroyed the image of God in which it was created, our soul. It has made him love sin and hate God. You see, in Adam, you and I are a hot mess, but we're worse than that. We're condemned. But praise be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has saved us. And so the flesh is still a reality in our lives until we breathe our last breath. Now, on the other side, we have the Holy Spirit. Now, notice with me, the word spirit is mentioned in these 10 verses seven times. Would you circle all or highlight all those times? Seven times the spirit is mentioned, and to make it easy, it's a capital S in the ESV. I mentioned 10 times. And so, in in kind of a, a similar, but not even the same way, in a similar way, Jesus had the two natures. He was fully God, fully man. You could say we have a micro version. I would call it hypostatic disunity. Uh, we have two natures in complete opposition to one another. We have the flesh and we have the spirit. So all that being said, we have a choice to walk in the spirit, walk in the flesh. Now, we spent a lot of time on that point, but look at the next point, uh, number two. The flesh earns condemnation when you live sensually. Starting in verse 19, we get a, a description of the works of the flesh. 
And we're told here that they're evident. They're evident. They're obvious. In other words, there's nothing surprising on this list of verse, in verses 19, 20, and 21. There's nothing on that list you go, oh, wow, that's the flesh? I didn't know that. If you have no Christian exposure or no Bible, you know, exposure experience today, and, and we read through this, you're going to go, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, that summarizes people who are kind of living selfishly or sinfully. I, like, I don't know what sin is, but I could say that's probably a good description. Uh, and so uh, look at this list, verses 19 through 21. Uh, he says, the works of the flesh are evident. And then he begins to list them out. You might say, Pastor, we're not going to go through this list. Yes, we are. We're going to walk through each one of these. Now, Warren Wearsby breaks this list up into three categories. I'm going to put them on the screen. Three categories. I'm going to add a fourth to that because um, Wearsby is great, but um, I just want to add one more. So we have the sensual sins. We have the sup- what he calls the superstitious sins or the worship sins. And then he calls them the social sins. So let's work through these quickly. Um, first, the sensual sins. Look at the first uh, part of verse 19. He says, the works of the flesh are evident. First, he says, sexual immorality. The word there for sexual immorality, I've said it before, it's the word porneia in the Greek. It's where we get the word pornography from. And this does not mean just sex, but all types of sin that involve sex. All types of sin. So anything you could say that involves sexual sin, anything at all. Now, the Bible tells us that all other sins that people commit are outside of their body, but sexual immorality is when we sin against our own body. And so that begins the list. And we would say, yeah, those are things that disqualify politicians. Those are things that disqualify pastors. Uh, That is definitely at the top of the list, sexual immorality. But then he says the word, notice with me, impurity. And if you've got your scripture journals, the, the word impurity actually means moral uncleanness. It's anything that you've let into your life that has polluted you. It's something that stains your hands dirty. The other day I got into the engine of my car and put in some power steering fluid and I started messing with nozzles. And the next thing you know, I look at my hands, I'm just, I'm just blo- they're totally black, caked with, uh, with oil and, and grease. And so I had to clean them off. But that's the idea. The idea is that your conscience has become guilty. It's become soiled. Uh, Titus 1.15 hints that those who are impure see everything as impure. And so they can't hear people talking without, like they hear a sentence and they can't help but thinking of that's what she said joke. They can't help but thinking something maybe impure. Uh, oh, they said something, yeah, that's, that's salacious. So that's impurity. But then he says the word sensuality. It's the third idea under sensual sin, sensuality. And these are things according to the Greek, that a child of God should never do. The, the best word to use here is wantonness. Uh, one Greek scholar says it's a word that speaks of someone who acknowledges no restraints. Like, the, yeah, everything is, is fair game. I'll do anything. I'll do everything. Uh, they dare to do whatever their petulance may suggest. Um, this one scholar said it refers to someone who has a contempt for public opinion and who will shamelessly outrage public decency. So if people are, are shocked by something, <gasps> that's what this sin would be. Something where I like getting the attention, I like shocking the, the norms of culture. It's, this is kind of the spot where all of the shameful fetishes lurk, right, in the wanton disregard for the law of God, sensuality. So those are obvious, right? Those are ob- we see that. We get that. But, but so are the superstitious sins. And I call these the worship sins. Notice the next word in verse 20, idolatry. 
idolatry. Now, I'd venture to say if I went and visited your house today, none of us would have something golden that we go into our house and then we begin to, you know, bow down before. I'd venture to say that that doesn't happen at your house. But many of us will go home and we will turn on a screen and we'll jump up and raise our hands and we'll bow down. Like we'll do the same kind of actions in front of our team. I don't have that problem because my team is the Bucks and they never win. So I don't have that problem. But many of us have things in our life, and it's okay to acknowledge today that we do sometimes carry idols in our heart. Our life, your life, our lives are riddled with idols. Uh, I love what one person said, that we have a, a variety of heart idols. One of them is power, the power idol, where, hey, life only has meaning, or I only have worth if I have power and influence over others, the power idol. Or the approval idol, where life only has meaning and I only have worth, if I'm loved and respected by so-and-so. Or there's the comfort idol. Life only has meaning or I only have worth if I have this kind of pleasurable experience or a particular quality of life. Or there's the control idol. The control idol says life only has meaning or I only have worth if I'm able to get mastery over my life in this area. So idolatry, who or what occupies the place of greatest worship in our lives? If it's not God in Christ, then it is, by definition, an idol. So he continues on. He says the word sorcery. Now, circle that word sorcery. Very fascinating word. The Greek word here is actually the word pharmakia, which is where we obtain the uh, English word pharmacy from. Now, there's a very fascinating connection here between the word sorcery and the idea of drug abuse or even drug use. This is very fascinating. Um, we translate the word for drug use as witchcraft or sorcery. So could it be that we alter our state of consciousness with drugs or alcohol, and that puts us in the same boat as those who delve into demonic influences? Well, both sorcery and drug abuse have the same root issue. It's being under the control of something else, an outside influence. And so that drug abuse actually affects you spiritually, not just physically or psychosomatically. Now, much study has been done in this, uh, but I thought that was a fascinating connection, sorcery uh, and drug abuse. So those are kind of the, the um, you could say, the worship idols or the superstitious, uh, superstitious sins. But then we get into the big list. And I don't know if you notice this, but there's a, it leans way more on this list, the social sins. Look at this first one with me. Uh, he says the word enmity. Enmity. Now, this is a good word to begin this list of social sins because this is the inner motivation that leads to the rest of this list. This word enmity is the opposite of love and friendship. It's hostility and it's an inner conflict that you have for someone else. It's just an inner enmity. Like you kind of see them and they set your teeth on edge. Like, oh, there's so-and-so. And it begins to spark the rest of this list. So the first word after that is strife. And originally this had to do with um, a rivalry for a prize. And, and it became um, to mean this idea of um, rivaling against someone in a quarrel. It, it speaks of a combative and argumentative spirit, just a person of strife. This is the word you think of when people are on Facebook during an election cycle, right? This is the word, strife. Just, just arguing and quarreling and back and forth, back and forth. We have two teenagers now, and so I, I think you get the drift. Like there's just strife, right, sometimes. Brother and sister. Uh, then there's the word jealousy. Notice the word jealousy. Jealousy, uh, the word here is actually the word zealous. 
So jealous, zealous. Um, the idea is that when we're jealous, we're passionately protecting things that we have to an extreme. And so we compete with others over what we possess. And when someone else has something, we get jealous of what we have. That's more the idea here. It's different than envy. We'll get to that, though. And, and then he mentions fits of anger. So these are emotions that lead to explosions. These are those sudden flashes of anger. Uh, this is not the settled state of anger where it's like just fuming. This is where you erupt and just kind of blow up. Um, wives, any of your husbands? No, no, I won't do that. I won't do that today. Uh, husbands, any of your wives? Uh, this is something that a lot of us can struggle with, just having a fit of anger. And often anger is a right that's violated. And so we feel, I have that right, and then we erupt. Well, fits of anger. Then he says rivalries. And other translations have, instead of rivalries, the word, um, the phrase selfish ambition. Really interesting. This was originally the word for a day laborer. So you work a day, get paid for the day. But it began to change over time to describe someone who just showed up to get paid. They didn't really want to work hard. They just show up. I need to get paid today. And so it, the, the idea shifted to this concept of someone who's literally just out for themselves. And so notice how it's connected to rivalries. That, this is the person who just wants to run for office to tell you what you want to hear so they can get more of the perks. They are only in it for themselves. And that will naturally produce rivalries, disputes, and leave a wake of hurt people when we live our life only for selfish uh, means. Well, then we have the word dissensions. It's just getting worse, isn't it? Dissensions, literally the word means standing apart. And one scholar said that dissension describes a society where all the members are flying their own way instead of in formation together. You may have seen that in a church community where everyone has their, their own ideas of where we're to go and that just causes dissension and it causes division and it can cause a church uh, to lose gospel witness. Well, then he gets even further and he says divisions. Um, very interesting word. That word divisions is where we get the word heresy from. So the idea of this word uh, originally meant to choose. You choose what you believe or choose a side. And over time, it came to mean someone who expresses their choices against someone else's. And so today we think of heresies in terms of wrong ideas and teachings, but the emphasis of the word is that we uh, have a wrongful dividing over just opinions. Well, that's your opinion, and so you're a heretic. And so we divide over that, and we call people out because of these little uh, things that we disagree over. And we're not talking about theology. I'm talking about um, just relationships. And so heresies can be thought of as a dissension that suddenly becomes hardened. Then we have the word envy. So if jealousy is being sinful over what we have, envy is being sinful of what we don't have. And we see what someone else has, and we get envious of that. And so the ancient Stoics called this grief at someone else's good. I'm, I'm grieved because someone else is doing good. One uh, philosopher called it the greatest of all diseases among men. Uh, let me bring this home for us. One person said that envy is the art of counting the other fellow's blessings instead of your own. <laughs> Yikes. Maybe that guy pulls up to the stoplight and he's driving the Tesla. And you're like, really, Lord? I'm still driving this Honda. Man, that's what it comes down to, envy. Now, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but there are many more sins in this last category than in the sexual sin or the worship sin category. And so we're quick to call people out when we see the sexual sin or the impropriety, and rightly so, but not many people are stepping down from politics or ministry because they have jealousy or they're divisive. But see, these seem to be more acceptable sins 
than someone who gives into their sexual urges, but they're still the works of the flesh. Now, I wonder, why are so many listed here on this end of the spectrum? Why are so many of the social sins listed? I believe because in context of where Paul's writing out in Galatians, he's showing us how important living the life of spirit-empowered liberty is within the context of real gospel relationships. He's saying this is of, of, of critical importance that if we're going to live free lives, we do that by loving one another. And the opposite of love is to be in the flesh. And this will tear a church community apart. Now, next week, we're going to see that concept really built out in very practical ways. And I'm excited about next week. But in almost all of Paul's writings, he emphasizes what we have in Christ first. And then what follows is how that affects your relationships with the body and with your immediate family. And so with this list of these different sins, I told you there's one more I would add. I would add one more, the surplus sins is what I call this. The surplus sins, notice with me at the end, verse 21, he says, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Okay? Drunkenness and orgies are both similar and that they are outside of the safe boundaries of something God gave us that was good. In the case of the first, responsible drinking, he gave us wine to enjoy. And I did a Facebook Live on the idea of wine and alcohol. I want you to go back and watch that because we clarify some things biblically on that. Uh, something God gave us that is good. Uh, it's taking that and making it excessive, going beyond it, and then taking it and making it excessive, drunkenness. Or something like marital sex, taking something in that boundary and going beyond the excess of marital sex, pushing it past the border. We could add gluttony to this list. He doesn't. The Proverbs, the Scriptures condemn the excess of overeating or being overfed. But essentially, it's taking something God gave you and, and uh, making it in excess. Now, I love at the end of this list, did you see it with me, that Paul just says, and things like these. Uh, another translation says, uh, and the like. In other words, we all have a junk drawer in our home. You open the junk drawer and there's batteries and, and old screwdrivers and, I don't know, cash. There's pennies. There's just stuff in that junk drawer. You're like, where is my, oh, it's in the junk drawer. And so the junk drawer here, Paul says, and things like these. So if you're thinking of that one thing that didn't get mentioned today, it's there. It's right there in the list. So repent, all right? <laughs> it's there. Uh, so Paul says, I warn you, I'm warning you as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a New Testament concept. Now, you can't water that down. He says, you will not inherit the kingdom. You might say, what if I just messed up once? I had envy. Like, I really did want that Tesla, so I'm not going to inherit the kingdom of God. What's, what's in it for me? I'm doomed. Well, didn't, Paul didn't say that. He said, those who live like this. In other words, your life is marked in a habitual, patterned, consistent lifetime, not one accident. Uh, John Stott says it this way, the verb here, live, refers to habitual practice rather than an isolated lapse. Those who live habitually by the flesh will not, they cannot inherit the kingdom. But if you repent of your sin and submit your life not to the flesh but to the spirit, then the scripture says you will be forgiven and you will be born again. But you'll also not just be forgiven, you'll also be fruitful. And that's the third idea, we're going to move a little faster, that Paul conveys in this section. Notice with me, uh, verse 22, but, okay, big, trans, uh, big translation here. We're changing from the idea of the works of the flesh to now the fruit of the Spirit. And in, then he lists them. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
one of the big opposites in Scripture. And we've just gone through a long list of dirty laundry, but now we come to the clean detergent. (laughs) Here's the, the change. The works of the flesh are different than the fruit of the Spirit. It's a different concept even. David Gusick points this out. He says, works are works, and fruit is fruit. So this is not the, the works of the, the Spirit. Like, this is what you need to do to work to get the Holy Spirit to work in your life. No, he says it's fruit. Fruit has several important characteristics. First, fruit isn't achieved by working. It's birthed by abiding. Fruit, you never see, I've never walked down a, an orange grove and heard the trees going, Ugh, right? They're not trying to push the fruit out. It just, it's just born on the tree. They're abiding into the tree, into the vine. Fruit, secondly, is fragile. It's fragile. It, it reproduces itself. It's attractive and it nourishes. I like that. Notice that he says singular, the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits of the Spirit. Guys, can we fix this? Can we, fi- like, can we stop saying revelations? It's not the book of revelations. It's one singular revelation of Jesus Christ. If I can change that in this community, then I've done a good job. Okay, revelation, singular, fruit, singular. Not fruits of the Spirit. It's one singular fruit. The fruit of abiding in the Holy Spirit is this list. It's all there. I'm so frustrated when I, I, was, on, I was on Pinterest this week and noticed, I found a couple, I was trying to get a good pin for us. And so notice here, it said, fruit of the Spirit, instant download. And you just like, is that literally? Like I instantly download and now I've got love? <laughs> I was kind of hoping so. It didn't happen. Uh, I didn't love my wife well this week. So, you know, love, joy, they're all separate. Give the cards the joy card. No, in fact, I saw another pin that really made me mad. This one said, find out which fruit of the Spirit you have. Like, seriously? Oh, you have patience. So good job. None of us have that, but you got it. No, that's not the idea. The idea is it's one singular bunch of fruit. It's one big stalk of fruit. And ultimately, it's love. It's love manifested in these variety of things. So love uh, is is agape. It's the the, um, unconditional service of someone else with no regard to one another or with no regard back to yourself. And that bears itself, that love bears itself in these different things. So he says joy. Circle that word joy. This is the life that is glad with God in both the good and the bad. Ladies of virtue are going to be doing a, 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 their social, their Christmas social um, this month. And it's all about joy. A guest speaker coming to share about joy in the midst of hardship. Uh, then he says peace. And this is having a heart and a mind and an attitude and a disposition that is fully whole. And it's in harmony with God. It doesn't mean the absence of conflict. It actually means wholeness in conflict. Peace. And then he says patience. You could say long-suffering, one of the least popular fruits. (laughs) A lot of us, when we pray, we're like, I'm not praying for patience. I've heard some of you say, I'm not praying for patience because then i got to live a life that embodies patience. This is the grapefruit of Galatians 5, right? This is the fruit nobody wants. (laughs) Like, I like grapefruit. Okay, good. One of you does. Forbearance is the fruit of a life submitted to the Spirit of God. And listen, forbearance, long-suffering patience, is a telltale sign, if we don't have that, that we're in the flesh. Right? A lack of patience is a telltale sign we are in the flesh. Hashtag traffic. Patience. And then he says kindness. Now, kindness is deeper than Mr. Rogers, as much as he's awesome. Kindness, it means uprightness. And it means to care for people from a heart that mimics the heart of our Heavenly Father. We're told in Titus 3 that when God's goodness and loving kindness appeared, he saved us, not because of the things we have done. His loving kindness has appeared. So this is mimicking the heart of God. 
It's an uprightness. And then he says goodness. Goodness implies that at the very core, there's intrinsic goodness. There's not evil. And so you don't take a bite of this fruit, this fruit of the Spirit, and go, oh, it's kind of rotten on the inside. And from the very inside, under the surface, it's good. And then he says faithfulness. Now, we actually mistranslate this. We say, oh, faithful. Like, that guy's really faithful. He's been sticking it out and he's faithful. Actually, the idea of the word is more like being filled with faith. That's the real idea of the word. So it's not just trustworthy. Like, you're a trustworthy guy. You're faithful. No, it means that you're full of faith, that you have confidence in God as a person full of faith. And then we see the word gentleness. Gentleness, the opposite of fits of rage and anger. Uh, the, the idea here is not returning evil for evil. And this is trusting God for justice and not retaliating when we're wronged. And that is truly the heart of Christ, who did not revile when reviled against. But he was gentle. And he even said, I am gentle and meek. Learn from me. And then we finally see self-control. And this is where we allow God's spirit to control every corner of our life. And the world does have a semblance of this concept of self-control, self-discipline. But listen, this idea is a spirit-directed self-denial that goes beyond yourself and looks to benefit others and works on the behalf of others. And only by the Holy Spirit can someone have that level of self-control. Now, it's important that we uh, explain here that none of these things in this list are possible in all of the list, whether not doing the things that are on the flesh list or doing the things in the fruit of the spirit list. Listen, this is not a sermon where I say, okay, church, you're either on the naughty list or you're on the nice list. And so clean up your act and get over here in the right list. Stop doing naughty things and start doing the right things. No, you can't manufacture the fruit of the Spirit. Like, just conjure that up when you go home. Like, try to be more good. Try to be more kind. Be more faithful. That's not what this is all about. Uh, it has to be, you could, t there's two ways to grow an apple tree, right? You can actually put a seed in the ground and let it grow. Or you can take apples from the store, take them out of the bag, and staple them to your regular tree, right? And that's not going to be successful. And so I'm not telling you to manufacture the fruit of the Spirit in your life. What I am telling you to do is to abide in the Holy Spirit. And so love and these accompanying attributes are the fruit of walking in the Spirit and not the flesh. It's a life of fruitful character that pleases God. Why? Because it's godly. And so Paul wraps up the fruit of the Spirit with this powerful phrase. Maybe you caught it. Against such things, these things, there is no law. That brings us to our fourth idea, our final idea, and that is that the Spirit life is not under the law. Not under the law. Look at verse 18 again. We back it up. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You don't need to be because you fulfill the will of God through the inner influence of the Holy Spirit instead of the outer influence of the law of God. We know this from Scripture. The Holy Spirit writes the law of God on our hearts, inside of us, and it creates a new desire to obey him in love. And this is the great work of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 33 explicitly tells us, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So this inner influence is far more effective than the outer influence. One person, uh, uh, New Testament scholar West said this. He said that a policeman on the street corner is a far more efficient deterrent of lawbreaking than any number of city ordinances uh, placarded for public notice. You can put a sign up, but once a policeman's there, everyone suddenly drives slow, everyone suddenly obeys the law. And so 
Um, the psalmist in Psalm 40 sang about this. He sang about how he delighted to do God's will and, and that God had written his law on his heart. And that's the idea. So the Holy Spirit does not lead you ever to commit any of the works of the flesh. The Spirit of God will not drive you to sin. And likewise, the flesh cannot produce a life of good works that are pleasing to God. Neither, though, can the law. And that's Paul's point. It's only as we're empowered by the Holy Spirit that we can ultimately live a life of good works, produced from a heart that's yielded to him. And so we really don't have to, but let's apply this passage of Scripture from the last three verses. Three big points as we apply this. The first one is to, number one, crucify the flesh. Look at verse 24. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So crucify the flesh. Uh, Listen, that means that we don't kind of modify it. We don't let it kind of live there. We put it to death. We mortify it. We declare war with it. Augustine used to pray, Lord, deliver me from that evil man, myself. And so I would encourage you to crucify the flesh. Secondly, the big second application is keep in step with the Spirit. Notice verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So living by the Spirit means allowing the Spirit of God to lead you. Another translation says walk in the Spirit. Notice Paul doesn't say veg in the Spirit. Paul doesn't say crawl in the Spirit. He doesn't say lay around in the Spirit. He doesn't say have good intentions by the Spirit. No, he says walk. Walking is the only type of forward momentum that is step by step steady, progressive, and stays at a good pace. And that's what we're to do. We're to walk day by day, step by step, minute by minute, prayer by prayer, morning by morning, glory by glory with the Spirit of God. And and so uh, I would just encourage you uh, to, to submit to the Holy Spirit and to keep in step with Him. The flesh and the Spirit are at war with one another, and every war depends on resources. So many wars have been fought throughout time. And we could research all the different wars and and find out that they really came down to a principle of resources. Who out-resourced the other? By the way, that's why we're not living in the Confederate States of America. Did you know that? Uh, We don't have uh, rebel flags everywhere, right? Well, some people do, but we don't have those set up uh, in uh, America because the Confederate States lost. The South lost not because Southern people were unintelligent or not strong. That's not why they lost. We gained a lot from the South. We gained cotton. We gained Toby Keith. We gained, you know, the mullet. It's all important stuff, okay? (laughs) I had to say it. I'm sorry. It's fine. I grew up in Georgia. It wasn't that the North had more intellect. In fact, some of the most brilliant men defected to the South. Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, brilliant men. It wasn't that the North had more skill. In fact, they're fighting most of the battles in the South where the Southerners knew the land. It wasn't that the North had more of a desire to win. The South were driven by the cash cow of slavery. So it wasn't, it didn't come down to any of those things. It actually came down to the North had more resources. Look on the screen. I don't know if we have a picture of this. The North and South resources, look at the population in the darker color. Way more of a population, way more railroad tracks, which is transportation, way more firearms, almost completely 100%, and much more manufactured goods. You see, it came down to more supplies, more resources going to the north. And that's why Paul says keep in step with the spirit. Otherwise, you're going to feed the flesh. You're going to give more resources to the flesh. 
And so I would say it this way, the battle belongs to whomever you supply. The battle belongs to whomever you supply. So are you going to supply your time, talents, and treasure to the flesh or to the spirit? We can bring glory and worth and sacrifices to an army that seeks our destruction or to another that will build us up and cause us to flourish and blossom. So keep in step with the spirit. Thirdly, I would add this, stay humble. Notice verse 26. He says, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. And so listen, when the flesh is at work in our lives, pride takes control. And this causes us direct conflict with our spouse, direct conflict with our families, with our coworkers, with our church, with anyone who stands in our path that's a threat to us. And so Paul challenges the church to stay humble. Spurgeon said it this way, and this should remind us of our humility. Spurgeon said, I know of no consideration which tends more to humble us than the great mercy of God. Like Peter's boat, which floated high in the water when there was nothing in it. But when it was filled with fish, it began to sink. So our minds are humbled by a sense of undeserved love. Isn't that awesome? Knowing that all we have is from the mercy of God should cause us to stay humble and thankful for who God is and what he's done in our lives. Now, as we close, I'm going to invite our worship team forward. You guys can close your Bibles, get settled. We really have three ways of living, don't we? We can, number one, let the law guide us. And this is the cry of the legalists. And this is the argument that Paul was denouncing through this entire study. The law is a tutor that brings us to Christ. It cannot save. It reveals sin, but it has no power to stop us from sinning. Or we could secondly let our flesh guide you. And this is the natural state of every human being. This is our fallen, sinful nature from Adam. And Paul says that the acts of this sinful nature are obvious. And you will be eternally condemned. Or thirdly, we can let the Spirit guide us. And so the believer not only renounces the flesh, but renounces the law, and we realize that we have the Spirit of God at work uh, within us. And so, friends, I want to encourage us today to embody what Romans 8 says, where he says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So church, are you living by the spirit? Are you walking in the spirit? I want us to bow our heads together. How do we do this? How do we keep in step with the spirit? Well, we do that by yielding to him, by listening to him, by waiting upon him, by responding to him, by asking for more of him, by diving into his word, by not grieving him or resisting him. We stop fighting him and we join him in his work. We actually give him room to work. We step out of the way and submit. We stop making excuses for our sin. And we allow the transforming work of the Holy Spirit to change us from the inside out. Do you need prayer for this today? I want to pray for you if that's where you're at. Maybe you're a Christian, you've been walking in the flesh. Do you know today that living a lifestyle like that, you will not inherit the kingdom of God? I want to encourage you today to repent of your sin and to walk in the Spirit. 
I'm not going to have you raise your hand, but I, I do know there may be some today that you're bound up in your flesh. And I want to encourage you not to walk in the flesh, but in the spirit. So I'm going to pray for you. I'm actually going to pray a prayer in the Valley of Vision called the Spirit's Work. And this may apply to more of you than you realize. Prayer says this, O God, the Holy Spirit, thou who dost proceed from the Father and the Son, have mercy on me. When thou didst first hover over chaos, order came to birth. Beauty robed the world. Fruitfulness sprang forth. Move, I pray thee, upon my disordered heart. Take away the infirmities of unruly desires and hateful lusts. Lift the mists and darkness of unbelief. Brighten my soul with the pure light of truth. Make it fragrant as the garden of paradise, rich with every goodly fruit, beautiful with heavenly grace, radiant with rays of divine light. Fill in me the glory of thine divine offices. Be my comforter, light, guide, and sanctifier. Take of the things of Christ and show them to my soul. Through thee may I daily learn more of his love, grace, compassion, faithfulness, and beauty. Lead me to the cross and show me his wounds. Show me the hateful nature of evil. Show me the power of Satan. May I there see my sins as the nails that transfixed him, the cords that bound him, the thorns that tore him, the sword that pierced him. Help me to find in his death the reality and immensity of his love. Open for me the wondrous volumes of truth when he said, it is finished. Increase my faith in the clear knowledge of atonement achieved, expiation completed, satisfaction made, guilt done away, my debt paid, my sins forgiven, my person redeemed, my soul saved, hell vanquished, heaven open, eternity made mine. O oh, Holy Spirit, deepen in me these saving lessons. Write them upon my heart that my walk would be sin-loathing, sin-fleeing, Christ-loving. Father, that's our prayer today. Do that work as we submit to the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.